1: Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
2: One of the things we try to do on this show is sort through all the confusion in our society. And if you listen to the show long enough, you probably sense that I think our world is becoming deranged by our technologies and our media ecosystem. Deranged might be too strong a word. But I do think that we've scrambled our relationships to each other and the world in profound and puzzling ways. And the post-truthiness of the Trump era drove home how far down the rabbit hole we've gone. But I sometimes wonder if things are really as weird as they seem. Every generation thinks their time is uniquely strange or dysfunctional. So maybe we're just falling into that same trap. Or maybe, just maybe, we're right. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Naomi Klein. She's a writer and a longtime activist who's written a number of very influential, big ideas books about the climate, about capitalism, and many other topics. Klein's new book is ostensibly about her professional doppelganger, Naomi Wolf, the former liberal feminist icon turned kooky anti-vax conspiracist. Klein has struggled for years to beat back the constant confusion between her and Wolf, often to little avail. But you realize pretty quickly that the book isn't really about this dynamic. It's about the distortions and absurdities of life in the digital world. It's also about how all of us, not just famous people, are experiencing our own bewilderment in this environment and how that has produced so much political and psychological havoc. It's truly one of the more interesting and perplexing books I've read in a long time. It's also very personal, which is different from any of Klein's previous books. I started by asking her about that experience.
0: It was a very different process, like from start to finish, from any of my previous books in part because it was my first secret book in the sense that, you know, the first line of the book, as you know, you know, it was, in my defense, it was never my intent to write this book. Mm-hmm. Um, no one asked me to, and several people strongly cautioned against it. <laughs> yeah. And and that is true. Um, and when I say nobody asked me to, I mean, I didn't have a publisher or an agent on the book until I had already written 10 chapters of it because I think I wanted to... Make sure that I could pull off a different kind of voice and a different kind of a more experimental form than my earlier books, which were all more conventional nonfiction books in the sense of having a very clear sort of thesis stated up front and an introduction that outlines exactly where we're going to be going and then, a you know, marshalling the facts and defending the argument and then saying that you did it and then getting out, you know, whereas this is very much, has many more windy paths through the woods and I hope they're enjoyable for the scenery, but it's a more experimental form. So yeah, basically I was the equivalent of book eight months pregnant before telling anyone that I had. <laughs>
2: I think by the time I got through the introduction, I was like, man, I would love to have been in the room when you pitch this thing because it's it's so kind of weird and winding. And by the end, it does sort of come together, but what you're doing is so experimental and ambitious.
0: Well, we do live in weird times, right? It was an attempt to to capture the vertigo of our moment, and I did feel that a very kind of confident, authoritative voice in a way would have alienated people. I wanted to write from inside the vertigo and I wanted the form to reflect the content in that way. I do think we get somewhere more stable. We don't stay in the swirl but I do think we needed to start there and feel it so that it doesn't feel like there's this person on the outside claiming they're above it all. Cause I, you know, I'm not. I, I had a rough pandemic like everyone else.
2: <laughs> so, how do you sum up what this book is about when people ask? Because it is about so very much.
0: Um, I, I don't really have a great elevator pitch for it. You know, my publisher, I, I talked about in a sense, it is an attempt to wrap one's arms around the wildness of the intersecting crises of a large portion of the population just deciding to sever all ties with recognizable reality and enter into a full-blown conspiracy fantasy world, meeting very real crises of of a pandemic and the climate crisis banging down our doors and surging authoritarianism. So, the doppelganger struck me. I mean, I think the, the moment when I decided this isn't maybe going to be a quirky essay, which is how I started thinking about it. I was going to write write an essay about identity confusion that would revisit some of the themes for my first book, No Logo, which came out before the idea that regular people could be brands was a reality because it was pre-social media. And so I thought it was going to be, yeah, like maybe a 10,000-word essay And the moment when I thought, no, this is way bigger than that was during the pandemic. I moved back to Canada from the U.S. And I live in a really beautiful, remote part of of British Columbia. And in about September 2021, I was driving through our small, sleepy town And there were hundreds of people protesting outside of the local hospital, and they were holding all kinds of signs about pandemics and Nuremberg trials and Fauci. And, you know, I can't stress to you, this kind of thing does not happen where I live. (laughs) You know, this is the largest gathering I had ever seen of of, a political nature in this part of the world. And it just seemed like, well, if this misinformation and conspiracy culture could have reached here then this is so much bigger than whatever I've been experiencing on an individual level.
2: The anchor for the book is sort of your own personal experience with your own doppelganger. This other woman, Naomi Wolf, or other Naomi, as she's called in the book. Um, I think we had to say a bit about her before we can kind of pivot into what you're really up to in the book. Who is Naomi Wolf? And How did she become such a pain in your ass? And how did she start out as a liberal feminist rock star author and then morph into whatever the hell she is now?
0: Right. So for any Gen X listeners out there, we probably remember who she was in the 90s. She first kind of shot to fame when she had just graduated. She was a Rhodes Scholar in the UK. And I think a year after she graduated, published this blockbuster book called The Beauty Myth. It came out when I was in second year university in 1990. And this was just a moment when the media was ready to declare another wave of feminism, the third wave, and she became one of its faces with The Beauty Myth. The book was about how unattainable beauty ideals were escalating at the precise moment when more and more women were entering the workplace, shattering the glass ceiling. And the book made this argument that women now had an extra shift of work that was holding them back and keeping them from competing equally with men. So there was the shift uh, that is your job, the shift that is the work of care at home, and then the beauty shift. So this, it wasn't that original an idea, but it was sort of packaged with Susan Faludi's book Backlash, which was an excellent book about different kinds of backlash in the 1980s. Then she became a Democratic Party consultant. She was a senior advisor to Al Gore in his 2000 presidential run, a controversial advisor. And I didn't used to get confused with her in the first decade of my public life as a writer, because I I didn't write about women's issues that much, frankly, and and she was mainly writing about women's issues. I was writing about states of shock, corporate power, climate change, and things started to get confusing when she started to seemingly get less interested in feminism and more interested um, in—she wrote a book called The End of America about authoritarianism under George W. Bush's administration— and it all went really wild during the pandemic where we were all online too much, and she became a really significant vector of medical misinformation. But the way she framed it, it sounded a little bit like my book, The Shock Doctrine, because you know The Shock Doctrine was about how unpopular policies and anti-democratic behaviors and policies are often smuggled in in the aftermath of large shocks, of, of social cataclysms, and That book doesn't argue that the shocks are created so that they can be exploited, but it looks at this sort of opportunistic dialectic between shocks and the advance of neoliberal capitalism. And she was making an argument that basically cast COVID as a sort of a plot in order to bring what she called CCP-style social credit to the West, basically to have us all under surveillance. And so I think that that got particularly confusing. So then when I would go online, I would just be inundated with identity confusion.
2: So at what point did you realize that your experience with other Naomi or her devolution or journey, whatever you want to call it, reflected something happening more broadly in our culture, that this was actually a way into a much bigger story?
0: Yeah, I thought originally this is an interesting way to revisit the question around should human beings be brands? Should we think of ourselves in that way? Because people would tweet things like, Naomi's having a branding crisis. She should sue for trademark infringement and things like that. And that was sort of fascinating to me because I did recognize that I did have a personal branding crisis, but I also have huge problems with the idea that humans should think of themselves as commodities in this way and in fact believe that this has been partly what has caused huge damage to social movements on the left. You know, we we sort of people gain influence through follower count. We don't know how to hold leaders accountable. And, you know, it creates a lack of trust. It creates cruelty online because if you present yourself as a thing, then people believe you and they think that they can treat you like a thing and that it won't harm you. So I thought it was originally that, but the real turning point was when the anti-lockdown, anti-vax, anti-mask movement really started coming to my remote community in rural British Columbia. And we started to see it manifest in all kinds of ways locally. My my husband ran for office. There was a a Canadian election in the summer and fall of 2021. And so we did a lot of door knocking and would meet people who were reliable, reliable, voters of the NDP, which is our leftish third party, formerly a socialist party, now more kind of left-ish than leftist, but but still, you know, it's what we've got in Canada. Um, And people who had reliably voted NDP were suddenly flipping and talking about the globalists at Davos, and use, but using that to flip hard right. And then there were people who, in the wellness world who were saying, you know, the only issue they cared about was vaccines and vaccine verification apps. And they would talk about their strong immune systems and how they were against big pharma. And at one point, my husband, Avi, said to somebody at the door, well, it's great that you have a strong immune system, but what about people who are immunocompromised? And she said, I think they should die. You know, And I want to stress, this looked like a woman I could have taken an Ashtanga class from. So I, that was, I think, the moment where I thought, this is not my niche Naomi Naomi problem. This is really part of a mass migration of the minds, the strange new alliances. So I'm trying to unpick this, and I'm trying to understand the relationship between these kind of outsized selves, like this idea that we have to perfect our bodies, perfect our families, perfect our brands, and the inability to act in solidarity with one another and to confront these collective crises that we are, I think, are all looking away from in different ways.
2: Coming up after a quick break, Naomi and I discuss what she learned by diving into the world of Steve Bannon.
1: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart so you can move or store it as needed and it ships straight to your door for free. Great Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow. B U R R O W.com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. One of the things you end up doing is immersing yourself in what you call the mirror world, you start mainlining Steve Bannon's podcast where Other Naomi became a recurring guest, and you really dove into this whole space. What did you take away from that experience? Obviously, you weren't um, red-pilled, as the kids say, but you clearly learned something about, about that side, as it were.
0: Yeah. I was interested in a perception among a lot of people who I knew that This whole world really didn't exist or didn't matter or was unworthy of our attention. And I saw that very clearly with the reaction to my doppelganger, to Wolf, because she was deplatformed on a lot of social media networks, including the one she was most active on, which was Twitter. First, she became a kind of running joke on Twitter. And then eventually, she was deplatformed. She's back, thanks to Musk, but she was kicked off in uh, maybe late spring, early summer of 2021. And the reaction, on twitter was like somebody actually tweeted ding dong the witch is dead you know and it was sort of like we did it we deplatformed her like she doesn't exist anymore we don't need to think about her anymore and because i had already started to sort of pay attention to what she was up to i was so struck that the opposite was true that she actually had a much bigger reach despite the fact that she was no longer visible to liberals and leftists. She was now, as you say, you know, a regular on Steve Bannon's podcast. At one point, she was on his podcast every single day for two weeks to give you a sense of their sort of unlikely buddy movie they're involved in. They put out T-shirts together, uh, a very limited edition. I don't think they're for sale anymore. But it was really a coming together. And, you know, the first time she went on his show, she said, you know, I used to think you were the devil. And so... What I learned a lot by listening to Steve Bannon, including, I think I got a a strong sense of why a figure like her would be so important to him as an electoral and political strategist. We all know for the MAGA right, women are a problem. You know, Trump did not do as well as he needed to do with white suburban women in 2020, and the Republicans didn't do well enough in 2022. And I think the reason why Bannon is as attracted to Wolf, as unlikely as that would be, her being a a lifelong feminist and a former Democrat, is not just that he's able to kind of cosplay, reaching across the aisle, which he, he likes to talk about how we won't cancel you, we're willing to come together across differences and across divide. I think what she represents to him is a slice of white women voters who had a rough time during COVID, don't like being called Karen, don't like that there's the schools closed for as long as they did. Got very worked up about mask policies and and vaccines, and he's now kind of pivoting them very quickly to book banning and transphobia. And so that's one of the things I learned from listening to him. Yeah, that's that's what strategists do.
2: That's something pretty important that you say in the book that the conspiracy theorists may get the facts wrong, but they often get the feelings right and the feeling is we have less and less control over our lives there are often important truths that are being hidden from us the feeling of disconnection so many people have and the feeling of belonging that comes with getting wrapped up in some of these online worlds and of course you know all of this gets supercharged around the hysteria of the pandemic and but anyone trying to make sense of our ideologically scrambled landscape especially this drift of so many people to what we think of as The right or the far right or whatever, has to recognize that people like Bannon are very good at sensing these legit grievances and fears of people and then offering them a counterfeit vision of emancipation. And I can see how easily you can get pulled into that.
0: I think that's exactly right. And then we dig ourselves in deeper when once an issue gets kind of co-opted, warped and twisted in that world, which I call the mirror world then the response among liberals and leftists is to mock, like the more conspiratorial they are, the more credulous we become. All kinds of issues become untouchable. So if they're mad about school closures, then we don't see a single issue to talk about <laughs> You know, when it comes to, to school closures. Or if they're talking about the lab leak theory, well, then that's crazy person talk. We won't even mention it. So when they get the feelings right, and then there's a a counter-reaction, whatever they're tapping into becomes kind of unsayable, it's an absolute gift to the Bannons of the world. So I'll give you an example that really kind of turned the light on for me, which is that the issue that was her right-wing star turn where she was suddenly invited on Tucker Carlson regularly and other Fox shows and and where Steve Bannon, I think, discovered her as a voice was when she started talking about how vaccine verification apps were actually surveillance tools that were going to bring Chinese Communist Party social credit systems to the West. I think at one point she said they can cancel your life like if they find out something wrong about you. Beyond just not getting vaccinated, basically, she was saying they're going to extend it from vaccination to absolutely everything like they do in China. And if you don't toe the line, then your kids won't be able to get into the schools. They'll be able to eavesdrop on your conversations in restaurants. They'll know everybody who you've met with. And the response on liberal Twitter to all of this overblown rhetoric about what vaccine verification apps could do when it came to surveillance was this pithy little joke, which was, wait till they hear about cell phones. And I remember the first time I saw that, and I thought, that's funny. I probably retweeted it, you know? And then I just thought, what am I doing? Like, am I saying that the joke is these people think a vaccine verification app is tracking them everywhere they go and is, is able to somehow like eavesdrop on them. We smart liberals know your cell phone can do that, and we think it's funny, right? But it's not actually funny, and a lot of people are really concerned about it, and they should be. And so what you see is that when an issue gets kind of trivialized or abandoned in mainstream circles and, or, or even in left circles— then it's ripe for the picking for somebody like Bannon to twist it. And so, you know, I think the way to respond to that is not say, you know, wait till they hear about cell phones. It's like, what are we actually going to do about this? And in fact, didn't we think that the Biden administration was going to do more to protect our data and our privacy online? There are ways that we can offer substantive responses to the feelings that they're getting right.
2: Yeah. And I do think it's worth saying it's Something you realized pretty quickly is that, you know, the world that Bannon's audience inhabits really is in another solar system. And I don't mean that as a condescending jab, like we're in the real world and they're in the fantasy world. What I mean is that we're not simply talking about different tribes with competing interpretations of a shared reality. It's different than that, right? I mean, you call it uncanny. The reality is that you have both sides looking at each other across the reflective glass, as you say, and thinking one side is in reality and the other side is in a simulation. And on some level, it doesn't even matter who's right. What matters is that there's really no bridging that gap.
0: Yeah, that we are having disagreements not about what to believe about a shared reality. We're having literal disagreements about who is in reality. And I have been very struck. You know, I write in the book that we have all had, or almost all of us have had, this uncanny experience and uncanniness. Freud described the uncanny as the species of frightening in which that which was once familiar becomes strange, right? So a doppelganger is an uncanny experience because you are very familiar to yourself and then suddenly you see somebody else who could be a living mirror and that's like a particular kind of vertigo. But there's also the uncanny experience of a friend who you thought you knew or a relative who you thought you knew, who you had some kind of shared understanding with, and suddenly they seem altered, they seem strange, you can't, unreachable by love or reason. And that's, you know, what films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers or Stepford Wives are tapping into that feeling. And, you know, frankly, a lot of doppelganger art is, is tapping into the fear of the ultimate Doppelganger threat, which is the flip from an open society to a closed one, and the flip from a tolerant society to a fascist one. When you have that experience where somebody who may have been an acquaintance, a friend, a colleague is willing to turn you in or is suddenly part of this fascist project and is othering you. So, the really strange thing is when I listen to these interviews with Naomi Wolf, she talks about us being. Stepford people all the time. And so like we both think each other are Stepford. And that is a very uncanny state of affairs.
2: It is. And I think what you're really up to starts to crystallize when you move beyond you and other Naomi, although that dynamic is always hovering in the background. And you start talking about how we're all drifting into personal mirror worlds and how we're all kind of losing ourselves and living alongside our own doppelgangers. I mean, obviously, you're a relatively famous public person with a relatively famous public doppelganger, but what does it mean to say that virtually everyone participating meaningfully in the online world is creating their own doppelgangers, their own doubles, whether they know it or not?
0: Well, this idea was first introduced in the late 90s and when i was researching no logo it was a very new and radical idea that was being floated in particular by management consultants like tom peters also you know you'd read about it in places like fast company that we should all become a brand called you right and the reason why it's worth remembering that this emerges as an idea that that we should fashion ourselves as products as brands as commodities is it's significant that it happens at the end of the 90s because this is also, a period of mass layoffs in the corporate world, and the idea that if you want to be a successful multinational corporation, you need to really primarily be in the marketing business and not in the stuff business. You know, you can outsource the manufacturing of your products, and pretty much anything that you can outsource, you should. And the main work that you need to engage in is communicating an idea of yourself into the world. So Nike, of course, is the master of this, also Starbucks, also Apple. But then they say, well, all you people who are getting laid off as these companies hollow out and really turn themselves into marketing companies primarily, don't worry about not having jobs and not having pensions and not having the security that a previous generation had. You can all become brands, and that will be the secret to your security and success. And this was a laughable idea to us, to our 1990s brains, I have to say. Like, we could recognize that celebrities could be brands because we were seeing the first branded super brands. Like, that phrase was something that I think Michael Jordan's agent first used about him. But the idea that a regular person could be a brand didn't make any sense because, of course, we didn't have money to market ourselves. And all of this changes with the iphone and social media which you know happens a few years after no logo comes out and so that's what we're trying to do we're trying you know we are trying to survive in these incredibly insecure times by creating a double of ourselves who is both us and not us, who is more wry, more clever, more beautiful, more glowing, more radical, (laughs) more, you know, it depends on which niche you're trying to appeal to. You know, Andrew Tate has a very different kind of brand than a glowing influencer, but the point, the logic of it is the same as the logic that Nike deployed or Starbucks deployed. You need to sort of find what the essential you is, and then you need to perform it and reperform it in order to build brand loyalty and compete against all the other brands out there. And the trouble is we are now competing against hundreds of millions, if not billions of people who are playing the same game. And so it just becomes more and more, well, I think the returns are diminishing. I think it's poison for solidarity. It's poison for camaraderie because the people who might have been allies are competitors in the scarcity economy. But yeah, that's what I mean by creating our, our own doubles. But because so much of it happens digitally on tech platforms that we don't control, there's another layering of digital doubles or digital doppelgangers that we contend with, which is that every time we go online to perform this version of ourselves or just to go shopping or use Google Maps or whatever it is, we leave a data trail. And those data trails are used by tech companies to create not so much digital doppelgangers of us as digital golems of us, which are, you know, these composites that let the algorithms know what to recommend to us based on things we've done before. Then on top of that, now we have AI where we could literally, you know, be having the odd experience of being confronted with somebody who looks and sounds exactly like us, but is not us and is causing all kinds of mayhem in the world. So yeah, there's a lot of digital doubling going on in the house of mirrors, which is why this topic felt really, Kind of rich to me and and why I do cut I use my own doppelganger experience as a kind of white rabbit into this world.
2: Well, one of the many shitty things is that we signed up for this without really understanding what we signed up for. I mean, you call it the Faustian bargain of the digital age. I mean, a Faustian bargain is obviously about shitty trade-offs. <laughs> um, what's the trade-off you have in mind here? Is it this? convenience and the illusion of connection and recognition that comes with digital tech at the expense of our personal data and all the agency we hand over by delivering it to these these corporations really
0: I think so I think there's real conveniences offered there's often a phase where it really isn't clear what the bargain is, right? And I know you've, mm-hmm. you know, covered this before, and this is sort of at the heart of Shoshana Zuboff's work on surveillance capitalism. Is like the first phase of it, there isn't really a business model for Google search, for instance, you know? It's like you give it away for free, you talk a lot about the commons, information wants to be free, et cetera, and you just want to put all of the aggregate information that the world has to offer at everyone's fingertips. Who wouldn't want that, you know? And then I think for creative types and journalists and, you know, anybody who wants to reach an audience, readership, build any kind of following, there's something pretty irresistible about those direct relationships that, you know, free of gatekeepers. And I think it's important to acknowledge that all kinds of wonderful things have happened because people have been able to to communicate directly without those gatekeepers and find each other and build communities. But we were never in control. And Eventually, the business model emerged and the terms of service agreements got more and more aggressive. And it turns out that we gave up not just our privacy, but I think now we're realizing with AI, in a sense, ourselves. You know, my friend Molly Crabapple, the wonderful visual artist, as part of this pushback on AI from visual artists who are watching programs like Dali serve up doppelgangers of their art in mere minutes uh, or seconds. and. That's only possible because so much of our lives are online and we're not protected and so these companies just hoover it up and are creating these doubles of us that are now competing with us. So yeah, it's a doppelganger world out there.
2: What effect is this doppelganger world having on all of us? That's coming up after one more quick break. Support for The Gray Area comes from Green Light. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do... But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Do you think most people, I mean, I I even include you and me in that most people even realize how these platforms and tools are changing us? Or do do you think we're mostly just blind to that and, and entranced by all the conveniences and all the actually legit, awesome things these tools allow us to do?
0: I think at this stage, some of it is still fun. I mean, I see people on TikTok having a lot of fun, but a lot of it is a bit grim. Yeah. I don't think Twitter's that fun a space these days. And I think a lot of this comes from, less from being entranced or even addicted to it at this stage, and more feeling that if we don't do it, we will disappear. We will be replaced by some other version of us who is doing the self-performance better. And it comes back to the rampant insecurity coursing through the culture that makes so many of us feel that even if we know this is having a really negative effect on our self-esteem, it's not how we want to be spending our time, we're more afraid not to do it than driven to do it. I may be projecting, but that's where I am, at least, and some people who I know. You know I think the bigger question around the way we perform idealized versions of ourselves and create different kinds of doubles of ourselves, branding is one way. I also argue that some of the fetish for the perfectly well, perfectly optimized body is another way that we perform perfected versions of ourselves. Or even for some parents, the child becomes a double, a fetishized double of the self, the project of the self. The canvas of change shrinks ever smaller, even as the crises we face collectively as a species grow ever larger. Um, If we are truly reckoning with the moment we're in of overlapping climate authoritarianism surging misinformation fueling both we're not going to do any of the things that we need to do on our own we're only going to do it through some kind of collective project political and social and so the the big question for me is like what aren't we building when we're building our brands cuz this is a lot of work it's not a part-time job and we only have a finite number of hours. And so if we are spending a majority of them on this project of self-optimization, which I'm putting in this broad category of creating these doubles, then we are not able to see one another and imagine the kinds of greater power we could have if we organize collectively in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, as voters, and That's the most important part of it. It's, to me, less about what these tech companies are doing and more what we're not doing while we play this game.
2: There's another, I don't know if paradox is is the right word exactly, but it's certainly a terrible trade-off. As more and more of our lives shift into the virtual world, we definitely have more freedom to assert our identities, to experiment with identities, but we also become unmoored from the real world and at the same time kind of remade in the image of our digital tools and the culture they create. And it seems like these things you've always written about, and we're talking about here, the, the phoniness of branding, the, the hyper individualism of late capitalist culture, it just all of that gets supercharged by modern tech. I mean, I don't know, am I projecting my own beliefs here or is that how you feel?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think certainly the confusion around identity is a lot easier when we are not actually interacting with each other. We're interacting with tiny little thumbnail avatars of one another which are eminently more confusable with tiny little thumbnail-sized avatars of somebody else. And I'm not immune to it. I mean, there are people who I can't keep straight who I just see in my Twitter feed, which is a phrase I find really insulting to humans, (laughs) 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 Um, where it's just this sea of faces. I don't think our brains are wired to sort this many faces (laughs) that we're exposed to in a day. But I also think that the combination of the unidimensionality of the technology, and the fact that we are marketing ourselves, we are thingifying ourselves. That is what it means to create the brand version of you, is to create a thing version of you, a commodity version of you. And I think this is part of why these are often such cruel spaces. We're all familiar with the analysis around how the algorithms encourage a certain kind of angry, indignant behavior that you'll get more engagement. And all of that's true. But I think missing from that analysis is the fact that it isn't only that the algorithm rewards rage and shaming, it's also that it's easier to treat people as a thing, as an object, if they're performing themselves as an object. You would believe that there's no human there and that they can... Just live through whatever pile on the crowd has decided is the outrage of the day. And I I thought a lot about this because I do think that the doppelganger at the center of the book, Naomi Wolf, is somebody who has experienced one of those internet shaming moments. She's actually experienced a lot of them. She's really been a punching bag over the years. And I'm not saying she hasn't made huge errors. She has. But, like, there's this famous moment where a major error in a book of hers was revealed live on the BBC. And, you know, we should hold each other accountable. We should take facts seriously. We should fact-check each other. There's nothing wrong with that part of what happened. I think in, in, in many ways it's right that there was a process of having an interviewer who did enough research to find this error. But what happened afterwards, right, was just one of those really ugly internet moments where it just became a sport to make fun of her as if she was not a human being at all. And I think that's related to what you're talking about, this unmooring.
2: This reminds me of a a really wonderful quote in the book that you pull from Zadie Smith, one of our better essayists and and novelists at the moment. And I'll just read it. She says, when a human being becomes a set of data on a website like Facebook, he or she is reduced. Everything shrinks. Individual character, friendships, language, sensibility. In a way, it's a transcendent experience. We lose our bodies, our messy feelings, our desires, our fears. And you add something very important to that quote. You say, but we aren't transcending to something higher, just less ourselves. And a flattened, reduced version of ourselves is easier to confuse with the flattened, reduced version of someone else. And that flattening effect you're talking about is so degrading to how we see ourselves and other people. And it directs so much of our attention to our online doubles, to our personal brands. And brands, as you say in the book, are not meant to contain our multitudes. And we're kind of trapped in that.
0: I think so. And it goes beyond... Our individual interpersonal relationships, because this logic is really inside of social movements that are fighting for change. You know, they often get reduced to just a few sort of celebrity activists. And, you know, in the book I write about how that happened to me. I wrote No Logo when I was in my 20s. It came out when I just turned 30. And when the book was at the printer, there was this huge and unexpected protest in Seattle against the World Trade Organization. And then there were a series of large demonstrations that seemed from the mainstream media perspective at that point to have come out of nowhere. So because I had just written this book, I was suddenly anointed like the face of this movement. And it was a troubling position to be in because I knew no one had elected me. (laughs) You know, I knew, I was not really accountable to the people who were in the streets. And I think at that point in the early 2000s, there was still enough of a sense. I mean, just to be like a woman of the 90s for a moment, (laughs) Um, we still had a sense of selling out like I would have been shamed for taking the deals like I, you know. like companies would ask me to do ads for them. And there were all these like offers that came to me that were very, that I didn't feel I could take, not because I was such an ethical person, but because the movement that I was a part of would have just taken me down if I did it. And that's very different today. You really can become a celebrity activist and it's an aspiration. And I think that that also breeds mistrust. So, you know, one of the things that I write about in the book is like, A feeling of of my own speechlessness, of not knowing how to have the kind of hope that I've had before about the ability of our movements to triumph and win a Green New Deal and all the things that I've advocated for in the past. And that had less to do with Steve Bannon and my doppelganger and the right than it did with watching movements that I'd been a part of turn on each other and fall apart. And you know, I think part of it has to do with the logic that we've been talking about and the kind of mistrust that it, that it sows.
2: I don't quite know how to connect all this, but there is some link here between corporate branding, which is obviously not new, and now personal branding, which we're talking about now, which is more a product of the social media era, and how it accelerates this confusion between what's real and what's bullshit, but it also confuses performance and genuine action in a profound way. And you call this the quicksand underpinning our age, this confusion between saying, clicking, posting, and doing. I'm not totally sure what the question here is, but I guess I'm wondering, what what's the price you think we're paying for confusing, saying, clicking, posting, and actually doing shit in the world?
0: Right, and it's so interesting that, you know, the recurrent sort of slur is performative. Like, this is just performative compassion, performative trauma, performative righteousness. But where is the real, right? Who isn't performative? And I think it really does have to do with this sort of severing of words from meaning, right? And I write about how when you look at the devaluation of language that is happening in the Bannon sphere— it's very clear that there's a kind of a deliberate cheapening of certain words. And that's always been the playbook, right? Fake news was a real thing before Trump started calling all the media fake news. And that was a useful thing for Trump to do because it made it harder to talk about actual fake news stories that had been planted during the election, like, you know, the Pope endorsed Donald Trump uh, and a news story that looked like it had come from a credible news outlet. The Pope had never endorsed Donald Trump. That is fake news. And it was a very smart move for Trump to immediately take that word and throw it at, at the entire establishment media, because it doesn't just discredit the media, it also makes it impossible to talk about real fake news, right? So I think we're all getting good at seeing that. But what we're less good at seeing is the way in which, on our side of the mirror, and I'm using a very broad hour here, words have also been cheapened, you know? And there's a lot of performance of care about racial justice, doing something about big tech. I mean, things that get promised on election campaigns, and nothing really changes. And, you know, I think there was an incredible moment, and I write about this in the book, where Greta Thunberg went to the Glasgow Climate Summit two years ago, almost three years ago now, and people thought they knew what Greta would do, which is what she'd done at the last few climate summits, which is give a very earnest speech, calling on leaders to act and saying, you know, I want you to panic, to lead— And instead, she just said, oh, build back better, blah, 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 green economy, blah, blah, blah. And every time someone put a microphone in front of her, she just said a variation of basically these people are full of it. They're all saying (laughs) that they're going to act on climate and we know they're not doing anything like what needs to happen. But... That is not nihilism, because then she did two things. She published an anthology tome called The Climate Book, where she gave a platform to activists from around the world and scientists to make the case for what we need to do in the face of the climate crisis. It's a great textbook. I'm using it in my classes. And, you know, when I interviewed her about it, she said, you know, it's not for the leaders. It's for us. It's for our movement. And then she also has been getting arrested trying to stop coal mining in Germany and, you know, new fossil fuel infrastructure. And she is engaging in in civil disobedience. She's moving beyond words, I suppose, or she's getting words in line with her own actions. So I think we need, you know, I'm not saying everybody needs to get arrested trying to stop fossil fuel infrastructure, but I, I do think some of us should. And I think more broadly, we need to reunite words with tangible policies. And I think the Democratic Party needs to, do some of that in a very big hurry if it doesn't want to get its butts handed to it in the next election from the fantasists.
2: You say something very interesting, and I think you say it early in the book, and I'll just read it if you don't mind. You say that for centuries, doubles have been understood as warnings or harbingers. When reality starts doubling, refracting off itself, it often means that something important is being ignored or denied, a part of ourselves and our world we do not want to see. There's a lot going on there, but what's the warning here, now? I mean, what do you think we as individuals and a society don't want to see?
0: Oh my goodness. I mean, so it's it's so hard to be alive to the moment that we have lived through and are in right now. And I think COVID was an unveiling of m- many pre-existing crises, and it happened very fast, where the book is divided between three main sections. The first one is about the mirrored self. The second is about the mirror world and the way we kind of play yin to each other's yang and react to each other. But the third is about the shadow lands, and that is what I think all of us are not willing to look at. And by the shadowlands, I mean the systems in which we're all enmeshed that we, I think, carry a huge amount of shame about because we're so implicated in them. We who are privileged enough to work, you know, in front of screens and during COVID were part of the lockdown class, we, I think, had an acute consciousness of the fact that we were being served and that everything that we had was because there were People who were bearing much, much greater risks, who were working class, who were very, very often black and brown and with precarious citizenship status, who made our lives possible, who brought us food, who delivered our Amazon boxes, you know, who kept the lights on, who collected the garbage. And that is the reality of living in a highly unequal class-divided society, but we deny that we live in a class-divided society. And the great promise of the Silicon Valley age is frictionlessness, which is I just get to tap on the screen and things magically appear. But that is the lie of our age because friction is everywhere. And I think that there is a shame about about being those privileged people. And so we have that unveiling that COVID- catalyzed because the nature of an airborne virus means you have to think about who else is breathing this air. And you have to think about what their circumstances were when they packed that box. You have to think about whether the person who delivered that package was able to call in sick. And so the illusion of individuality, of individualism, falls away. And we are having to see each other, including the shadowlands of our culture. And then George Floyd is murdered and more forms of shadow worlds are emerging, and we're kind of excavating the history of, of our nations. And that is also hard. And then the climate crisis is hitting us, and that is the future rushing towards us, and that is being excavated, and the costs of our comforts. So, like, how hard is it to be alive to that? And, and I think so much of what we're talking about is forms of looking away, like ways of not reckoning with the moment that we're in, because, and this comes back to these ways of performing ourselves and doubling ourselves, because all of this self-perfection and self-performance necessarily comes at the expense of building the kinds of collective movements and networks and communities that would make it bearable to actually look at where we are at. With these intersecting crises, with these intersectioning reckonings, with present, past, and future.
2: I appreciate the closing message of the book, which is that we're not as separate from one another as we might think, which is true and underscores the point that the mirror world is often just the virtual world and all the reality warping possibilities it offers. And the more you step away from the screen and into the actual, World, the less vulnerable you are to all of that. And you'll probably also be happier and more useful to the people around you. And I think that's worth remembering.
0: Yeah, I I deeply believe that. I deeply believe we need each other and that we give each other strength and courage.
2: What gives you the most hope about the future? I've always thought of you as an activist as much as you are a writer. So, given all the challenges here, what, what does give you the most hope about tomorrow?
0: Um, I mean, I think there are some bright spots in this world that we should probably talk more about. Like I look at at a country like Brazil that, that I think pulled itself back from the fascist brink with Bolsonaro, you know, has credible indigenous eco-feminists in cabinet. You know, that's really cool. We should talk about that more. And they're making progress on the Amazon. And I think it shows that A collective project and and mission. I don't want to idealize what's happening in Brazil, but I think it's a a bright spot. It gives me hope. And I think hope is contagious. I also, you know, I have been around social movements for a long time now, a good 30 years. And what I have learned is just some humility about the future in in the sense that I'm always being taken by surprise by mass social movements. I didn't see Occupy Wall Street coming. I didn't see the popularity of Bernie Sanders Coming. I didn't see the student climate strikes that brought millions to the streets in, in 2019 coming. And, you know, that's, I teach undergrads, and that's what I always tell them. I, I tell them, you know, we do not know when there will be a moment when suddenly an issue that seemed marginal becomes marginal. Um, I call them the (laughs) suddenly-everybody moments. The racial justice reckonings in 2020 was one of those moments. I know we will face another moment like that, and what we need to do is be ready with that moment, with our values, with our principles, with a political project, so that we can really turn it into the kinds of tangible change that are going to make the fantasies and distractions and absurdities of the the mirror world far less appealing.
2: Once again, the book is called Doppelganger, A Trip Into the Mirror World. Naomi Klein, my favorite. Naomi, what a pleasure. Thanks for coming in today. It was
0: such a pleasure, Sean. Thank you so much.
2: Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. Serena Solin is our fact checker and A.M. Hall is the boss. Special thanks to Caitlin Boguki. As always, let us know what you think of this episode. Drop us a line at the area at Vox.com. and please share it with your friends on all the socials. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays. Listen and subscribe. The Gray Area is a part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep Vox free by going to vox.com slash give.